Blog Talk Radio. The Four Persons Inc. is a federally registered and licensed 501c3 charity. Any use of any of our content without our permission is prohibited by law. Our purpose is evangelization, education, and social action. Please go to our website at thefourpersons.com or our blog site at thefourpersons.net to make your tax-deductible donation by credit or debit card. You can also send a check to The Four Persons, Inc., P.O. Box 11214, Manassas, Virginia, 20113. To contact us, send us an email at email at thefourpersons.com. Listening to the Luke Haskell Show on the Four Persons Network. Luke takes a deep dive every show into history, theology, and scripture. If you want to truly be educated, make way for the hammer of heretics himself, ladies and gentlemen, Luke Haskell. church is because of the issue that we're going to talk about tonight. All of their churches had no authority, and I just could never buy a Christianity on autopilot. (laughs) And uh, what good is a church without an authority? And that's what we're going to go into tonight. Luke, welcome. uh, And uh, that's what we're going to talk about tonight. We're going to talk about two Worldviews of Christianity, a church with a central authority, a central authority, a central structure set up by Christ, or a do-it-yourself religion that's basically uh, on autopilot, right? Uh, exactly, John. If you don't have authority, you have opinion. And a lot of times, uh, opinion uh, actually you know, doesn't let us you know, rise above the, the fallen nature that we have. That's why God established obedience to the faith. Right. No, so, you're exactly correct. Yeah. So God established in the Catholic Church uh, today uh, 
this authority and this this is what I want to talk about. And but I want to start by setting the stage with, with some simple reasoning so people have a clear understanding of why there has to be authority. Uh, we'll then begin to show uh, the authority got established. Uh, so we'll do we'll do this in stages and, and we'll build it up like we do with you know uh, same as most of the shows I've done where you got to build things up in layers for uh, people to get the, you know the, the right image of things. So people come from all different environmental influences, including different churches, which include the origins of those churches, all except the Catholic Church being a creation uh, of man and. Every church which calls itself Christian that is not Catholic finds itself as originally in schism from the Catholic Church, in schism from an original schismatic church, or something completely separated from the original schismatics. So every one of them, in their process of being created, to some level or another, developed in an image through a new, new interpretations of Scripture or a process of elimination of certain texts by calling them metaphorical in the goal of separation from the Catholic Church. Uh, and uh, I, I'm reminded of a certain mem, uh, you know, uh, a lot of these mems on Facebook are, you know, are just hilarious, but a lot of them, you know, you know, should really make people think. So there's a certain mem that illustrates this where, there's a line of different preachers as, as a, in, in, a, in a cartoon form. And it starts with a Lutheran in front of the line and a Presbyterian behind him says, wow, you Lutherans still celebrate Lent. That's papist. Uh, the Baptist behind the Presbyterian says, wow, you Tyrians still baptize babies. That's papist. Jehovah's Witness behind the papists says, wow, you Baptists still believe in the Trinity. That's papists. This is the danger of incrementalism in, in fallen nature. And uh, there's another one I want to address. Uh, and well, like I said, it, it's, it's funny stuff, but it really, really makes people think. And so uh, it's an image of three different churches next to each other. And the first one has a sign that says First Community Church. The second one has a sign that says Second Community Church. Third one has a sign that says Third Community Church. And the three pastors are standing out in front of these three churches uh, on the sidewalk right in front of them. And uh, uh, the first one says to the other two, maybe we need to redefine community. So, uh, of course, in human nature, they would then define community according to how they think would be the easiest for their ministry. That is part of the human condition. So these are good examples of why man and fallen nature cannot sustain God's truth without authority guided by God. Satan uses man's lower nature against him, and we can see how this starts. Uh, the original schematics might have had 98% of the truth. The next level might have 50, then the next level even less. So all that Satan needs is, is just a small fork in the road, and in the ro then man's lower nature takes over and can move man thousands of miles away from that true path. And, uh, you know, all that he needs is time, and, you know, he's got – he had all he needed. So we also showed this in our presentation, the Diabolical Deception of Born Again Movement. 
uh, in the creation of the 20th century fundamentalist movement, which even separated people from the original schismatics into the standalone born-again movement. Once you separate from baptism, you actually separate any ties whatsoever with the new covenant. Uh, and uh, in a devolution from authority established by God till today, you had man separating from the authority of the church, which led to the entropy of Protestantism, and man in fallen nature establishing multiple images of religions, of opinions. And once you separate from historical facts that back up authority, there is no way to rise above opinion. So, but what does this do to the state of mind when you begin to separate from the practice of humility and obedience to the faith? You begin to create an environment where in your own image of faith, you get the reality in pushing what you think is true reality. You no longer have a practice of humility through obedience. In turn, not even realizing how far we have gone, you become a god by proxy by creating your own image of God in faith from an interpretation that is simply pleasing to believe. You have them begin to fulfill Satan's plan for us, because he tells Adam and Eve, you will not die, you will be as gods, or you will have value separate from God. Value separate from God, you're creating your own image of God. So we can see that this is part of Satan's plan, because we know his famous words, non-servium, I will not serve, while God through Paul calls us to obedience to the faith, which is service. So then here is where cognitive dissonance takes over. Anything that challenges your set belief system, which you're emotionally grounded in, begins to create a turmoil in the mind. This is the point where a change of dying to self is the only solution to changing these preconceptions and moving toward truth. So yet it is also the point where the Holy Spirit exposes truth to the soul and a dilemma with infinite consequences uh, uh, develops. And this dilemma is, do I drop everything and follow truth, or do I end up in sin against the Holy Spirit by not following the truth revealed? So once the truth is revealed, it may haunt our conscience for the rest of uh, our lives uh, if we don't follow it. You may simply end up in a, in a slide downward where you begin to continuously ignore God on many levels uh, throughout the rest of your life. So it's, it's very detrimental. Mm-hmm. Luke, I want you, for listeners who may not be familiar with these terms, there's two terms I want you to, to kind of define so people can understand them. And one is uh, schismatic, and the other is cognitive dissonance. I'd like you to explain what those two terms mean. Well, the schismatics are churches that actually broke away from the original church, from the Catholic church. They're in schism with the church by creating a different doctrine, separating from the authority. In cognitive dissidence, it's a psychological term for uh, when you have, well, to give a spiritual example, uh, you have Protestants who uh, are very involved in, in the churches. They're in love with Christ. They experience his love. And in this love, as they read the scriptures, they think that God is revealing truth to them because they feel his love. And so when you have somebody 
with this mindset and they are approached with something that goes against what they previously believed. And it's a, a clearer understanding. It has much more facts to back it up. Then what they're thinking is, you know, the, the, you know, the Holy Spirit has been with me. So how could the Holy Spirit then, you know, show me something different than what I've believed? So at this point in cognitive dissonance, you have this mental turmoil where uh, it almost ends up a lot of times lashing out against what you don't want to believe. Mm -hmm. So you basically create the paradigm and build the evidence around it. So you basically build up a wall surrounding your own paradigm. Uh, so it makes it very, very difficult for anybody to get uh, different information into that person because it conflicts with the storyline that they've built for themselves. Yeah, and outside of the pillar and foundation of truth, the Holy Spirit is primarily a manifestation of God's love not an affirmation of God's truth. If it was true that the Holy Spirit was a manifestation of God's truth for everybody, then everybody would have the same faith as the disciples of the apostles who were right. taught directly by the apostles. Uh, James tells us, he who knows what is right and refuses to do so, for him this is sin. Paul tells us the wages of sin is death. John tells us there's sin unto death. So this all begins with denying truth revealed to the soul. So, playing devil's advocate here, and I don't like that term, but I can't think of a better term. But, um, you know, playing antagonist here, uh, if a person, it's, you're saying that if a person knows something is wrong and does it anyway, that it's sin, and yet if a person breaks away from the true church and they follow in a different direction, then they could make the argument, well, I believed what I was following was true. So this is the, this is kind of the struggle is at what do they profess to believe at surface level and what do they really believe deep down inside? And, and I believe this is what you're getting at with this, this cognitive dissonance, this conflict, this turmoil between what they want to believe and what deep down in, inside they actually know what is true. And that's this disobedience that Paul and John are speaking, uh, James and Paul and John are speaking of here, right? Yeah. And it's, uh, you know, it, it becomes very complicated because, you know, earlier in time, you had people like Augustine say, everybody knows where the Catholic Church is at, and everybody knows that it was the original church is what he's saying. So then he was saying, uh, you cannot be saved by, by, by leaving this church because everybody knew for a fact that the Catholic Church was the true church. And so when you have these schismatics, and uh, they, uh, over time, because of being bogged down in, in all this other stuff in history, you know, uh, you, you develop a situation where there's just there's so much uh, information to the contrary. You know, people look at things like the Inquisition. They look at things as bad popes. They have these understandings of the faith alone and believe them, sola scriptura and believe it, and they live by their convictions still. 
and uh, it, it creates a, a big dilemma. And so the church has, you know, what we describe as invincible ignorance. So if the Holy Spirit has not revealed these things, I mean, to the soul, where they actually truly see that they're on the wrong path, then they have uh, a possibility, you know, of salvation. Uh, but if uh, it is truly revealed and they fight against it, then you're no longer invincible ignorance. And the problem is in the modern age, invincible ignorance, you know, is getting harder and harder to achieve, I think. Right. Yeah, no, I agree. It's, uh, it's kind of hard to say you can claim invincible ignorance when you hold the device inside your hand that literally allows you to look up all the information that's ever been compiled. So in separation from the authority on, on another path, uh, developed into this false age enlightenment, which completely separated from the spiritual reality and developed a system of thought where all truth is revealed only through what we can see. So the separation from faith led to groups like the Libertines, which is a religion of hedonism and a purposeful process of action of doing whatever is amoral or whatever is the opposite that uh, one, would tie one to Christianity and the authority of the Catholic Church. So this led to Nietzsche saying God is dead. So even though our Constitution is founded on inalienable rights secured by God, this libertine undercurrent was still present. And our present state is due to separation from the moral and natural law. So it is a separation from what is the foundation of a free organized society with inalienable rights secured by God. Uh, in this separation from the moral and natural law is a slide into blind insanity, and there, there's no stop sign on insanity. And this all comes from the beginning, which is the separation from authority. So this is how detrimental separating from God's authority through his church is. Uh, there are a couple paths here, but Protestantism is responsible for the foundation of the entropy. I'm not discounting the worldliness and corruption in, in, in the church. But that that would be a story for a different day. Uh, the farther back in time you go to the origins of Christianity, the more the schismatics look, look Catholic. Uh, the greatest separation began through faith alone, scripture alone, of course. But both of these are easily disputed, and we have addressed both in the past. But to set the stage for looking at the authority, let's just look at uh, one of the proof texts Protestantism used uh, uses to separate from the Catholic Church. So every Protestant knows the verses. Every Protestant has a false understanding of them as a tradition of false exegesis, specifically created to separate people from the authority of the Catholic Church. Now, I'm referring to Paul's letter to Timothy uh, in, in uh, his second letter, uh, chapter 3. Um, mm -hmm. We'll start a few verses above the proof text. So, uh, Paul's writing to Timothy, and evil men and seducers shall grow worse and worse, erring and driving into error. But continue thou in those things which thou hast learned and which have been committed to thee, knowing of whom thou hast learned them from. And because from thy infancy thou hast known the holy scriptures, which can instruct thee to salvation by the faith which is in Christ Jesus, 
all scripture inspired by of God is profitable to correct, to instruct in justice, that the man of God may be perfect, furnished to every good work. So all scripture is inspired by God. Uh, of course it is. All, all Catholics would agree. The Catholic Church established the Bible. The question is how many interpretations are inspired by God? Does the Holy Spirit have multiple personalities over thousands of denominations? So first, there can only be one interpretation inspired by God. This would be an authoritative interpretation. So Paul is writing to Timothy, who received redemption from original sin through the grace given freely of entrance into the chosen people, the holy nation, the royal priesthood through baptism. So Timothy, who was placed as the bishop of Ephesus by Paul through the laying on of hands, uh, this is why Paul addressed him in passing as a man of God. He's a member of the clergy. Timothy, who would, through apostolic succession, ordain priests, as Paul told Titus to do in Titus 1.5. Timothy, who was living in obedience to the faith and the sacramental life, keeping this precept uh, of God, what Paul told us. For as often as you shall eat this bread and drink this cup, you will show the death of the Lord until he comes again. Paul says, the cup of benediction that we bless, is this not participation in the blood of Christ? You cannot separate these things from, from how Paul is addressing Timothy, who was living these things. So Timothy, who was instructed in the faith by Paul, who Paul described as his son in faith, the same faith as a universal church, would use the God-breathed Old Testament he knew of since the youth, and of God, a bishop in God's one universal church, for study and reproof of the priest and laity under his care, as Catholic bishops has done for 2,000 years. So those evil men Paul is referring to who would seduce, taking people further and further into error, are those who separated from obedience to faith by separation from the, the men of God, the bishops of the universal church. So we'll find with just about every verse Protestant tries to use against the Catholic church – a more truthful and encompassing exegesis will prove that actually accuses Protestantism. So it's God designed it that way. There's, there's no other way around it. So this is why Paul said in his letter to the Hebrews, obey your prelates and be subject to them for their watches being a, to, to render an account of your souls that they may do this with joy and not with grief for this is not expedient for you. And, of course, this, this takes us back to the choice, a religion of opinion or a religion of obedience. So the fathers of the church were defending against this religion of opinion from the beginning. Uh, Irenaeus, who is a uh, disciple of Polycarp, who is a disciple of John the Apostle, writes, he writes, those, therefore, who desert the preaching of the church call in question the knowledge of the holy presbyters, not taking in consideration of how much greater consequences is a religious man even in a private station than a blasphemous and impudent sophist now such are all heretics and those who imagine that they have hit on something more beyond the truth so that by following those things already mentioned proceeding on their way variously inharmoniously and foolishly not keeping always to the same opinions with regard to the same things as blind men are led by the blind, they shall deservedly fall into the ditch of ignorance lying in their path, ever seeking and never finding out the truth. 
So it behooves us, therefore, to avoid their doctrines and to take careful heed lest we suffer any injury from them, but to flee to the church who uh, and be brought up in her bosom and be nourished with the Lord's scriptures, saying through the church. So, so often in these debate rooms, in order to show the illogical nature of scripture alone, I would ask our Protestant brothers to do a specific task. I would say, show me your verses that you think prove Scripture alone, and then show me how your interpretation of those verses do not contradict the hundreds of verses showing the establishment of an authoritative church. So, of, of course, they, be, uh, they become stuck or, or fall into sophistry, giving an ambiguous answer that is uh, far from addressing their quest. Uh, but this here is part of the cognitive dissonance, I believe. So where we are now at the extremes ends of Christianity is people who create their own image of faith, even evolving into New Age spiritualism, where, where demons easily influence their understanding, where they think God talks directly to them, and they are God's messenger. Uh, you know, you look at people like David Koresh, you know. Uh, and uh, Jehovah's Witnesses, uh, uh, the uh, Seventh Day Adventists. Yeah, yeah. And, and I have said this over and over again because we must see why Jesus, uh, you know, uh, said these said these words. Not everyone that saith to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven, but he that doth the will of my Father who is in heaven, he shall enter the kingdom. And many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in thy name, cast out devils in thy name, and done many miracles in thy name? And then I would profess unto them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you that work iniquity. Well, why would Jesus say this? Why does Jesus raise obedience above casting out demons, prophecy, and miracles? Because Satan as the father of lies has the power to mimic all three in his goal of separating people from the Catholic Church. He will do all three in order to destroy souls, making them think what they are experiencing is from God while he keeps them in a heretical faith. So Jesus says, depart from me, I never knew you, because he was referring to those who never entered into obedience to the faith in the sacramental life in the kingdom of heaven of the church or someone who left the faith thinking they had found something better who really knew you know, never even connected to the faith. So what is this kingdom of heaven? If Jesus said Satan put weeds in the kingdom, there are no weeds in the eternal state. So the kingdom is God's church. So if you are being deceived through false miracles and casting out demons, etc., and you're outside of obedience to the faith in God's church, then this is God telling you, I never knew you. This is so, so important, and Satan destroys so many souls through this false path. Uh, don't let the cognitive dissidents keep you from dying to self. Uh, Jesus is the same God that, that punished those who attacked the, uh, uh, the, whole na the, the nation of the Jews in the, in the Old Testament. You know, this is why it's so important to focus on what Jesus said, is that unless you humble yourself as a little child, you shall not enter into the kingdom. Because it is that when you think of a child, you think of two things. You think of humility and obedience. Humility and obedience. And that, is, that really is the bedrock right there, is humility and obedience, because 
like you said, Satan is trying. Satan, you know, the Bible is very clear in the last days that Satan will do perform all kinds of signs and wonders and will deceive, even if possible, the elect. But Satan has no answer for humility and obedience. No, no. And uh, along with this, so there are doctors of theology or fundamentalists. There are doctors of theology who are Presbyterian, Calvinist, Pentecostal, Lutheran, you know, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, what do they all have in common? What they have in common is a belief in Scripture alone, which is asserted because it cannot be proven. They have in common differences in understanding and faith that looks worlds apart from the faith of the disciples, the apostles, and the early martyrs. Uh, for Protestant brothers and sisters who, who are listening now, can you name some people who believed as you do from 100 AD until the 14th century? If you're Protestant, you can't. It, it, it's just impossible. So Satan's deceptions are that diabolical. In man's objective of separation from the Catholic Church, he created a religion of anti-Catholicism as a tradition of man and separated man from the new covenant and full union in the mystical body of Christ. In this upside-down world, Protestants began to call Catholicism a tradition of man. So you cannot even enter the promise that Abraham fulfilled without baptism into the chosen people, the holy nation, the royal priesthood. So I wanted to start with a little fire and brimstone to condition minds to not look at what is to follow too lightly. Uh, of course, the church is the doctrine of invincible ignorance. Yet in, in the age of the internet, I, I'm thinking that that group would, uh, would qualify as being smaller and smaller. And it's dangerous. Yeah, and you, you talk about they've created a, a religion of anti-Catholicism that's right there in the name, Protestantism. You really think of what that means. It is a religion of protest. Uh, You're protesting against what? You're protesting against the authority of God's church. So there really are two only only two kinds of Catholicism when you get down to it. There's Catholic. I mean, two kinds of Christianity. When you get down to it, there's Catholicism and anti-Catholicism. Because in in the process of separating from the church, they had to look at Scripture and subconsciously or consciously find verses that they could create a different meaning of that wasn't there uh, before. And they did this, and in the process, they created a whole development of a new false exegesis, concepts and definitions that did not exist before in the desire of separation from the Catholic Church. And this became the Protestant tradition the lens that Protestants actually look at Scripture through. Therefore, you know, you know, it, it sounds harsh, but we have to deal in facts. It ended up being a religion of, of anti-Catholicism. So, whose interpretation of Scripture is not an interpretation of man? Either one religion is true, or no religions are true. We do not have a God with multiple personalities. So Jesus told us, do not think that I have come to destroy the law or the prophets. I have not come to destroy, but to fulfill. For amen, I say to you, till heaven and earth pass, pass, 
one uh, one jot or one title shall not pass of the law till all be fulfilled. So it is not reasonable to think that God would establish a physical authority in the Old Covenant as the final arbiter on interpretation of the law and not do so for the law in the new. We have a Supreme Court as the final arbiter on the interpretation of the Constitution. God established the papacy and the magisterium as the final arbiter on interpretation of the body of faith and morals God established. <laughs> I got that same crud you do now. I'm going to have a drink of water here. <laughs> I didn't mean to transmit it over the airways 3,000 miles away. Yeah, that's, that's, that's what you did, I think. <laughs> So while Protestants become their own final arbiter as individuals, the church defines what is truth through the three-legged stool of scripture authority of the magisterium influenced by apostolic traditions and all under the guidance of the Holy Spirit, which we will show scripture confirms this. So which is more logical of a process? I think it's obvious. Protestants not even knowing it have a Bible due to this process. Yet they attack the authority while they read from a book created by the process and the authority. So after living the faith for longer than America has been a country, after hiding books from pagans due to edicts of pagan kings to destroy all Christian records, the church was still coming together every Sunday and reading the liturgy of the Eucharist, of the Holy Mass, uh, reading the 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 two uh, the, there's two parts to the mass uh, the uh, liturgy and the Eucharist and uh, I'm sorry this uh, I'm mixed up now <laughs> but well, let's let's just uh, move on uh, they were doing so since the early days of Christianity in the mass they were reading from Scripture yet it was not a Bible. So Justin Martyr describes the Holy Mass, including the reading of the scriptures, in 150 AD. Yet he's describing a traditional act that had to have existed before him. So he writes, uh, On the day called Sunday, all who live in cities or in the country gather together to one place, and the memoirs of the apostles or the writings of the prophets are read, as long as time permits, then when the reader has ceased, the president verbally instructs and exhorts to the imitation of these good things. Then we all rise together and pray. And as we before said, when our prayers ended, bread and wine and water brought, and the president in like manner offers prayers and thanksgiving. So through this apostolic tradition, Justin is the first one to tell us there were gospels. Irenaeus tells us there were four Gospels, and he gives us the first early list of the epistles. And different church fathers gave further details uh, on the list, such as Athanasia. And yet, due to the church being underground off and on for over 300 years, at the same time people are reading the, the books we see as accepted, many of which do not have the author's names on them. They were also uh, in the mass in diverse places. They ever, everywhere the apostles, you know, set up churches. We're reading from the Shepherd of Hermes, First Clement, the Diatestaron, the Gospel of Thomas, the the Book of Enoch, uh, proto uh, the Proto Evangelion of James, the uh, Apocalypse of Peter, 
Pistols of Barnabas, uh, on and on, just tons of different things uh, because there's no uh, authoritative uh, canon. So also believing these were inspired and, and many more. So due to the church needing an authentic official canon read at every holy mass, wherever the mass was celebrated, the authority of the church through the three-legged stool of scripture, magisterium, and tradition guided by the Holy Spirit determined what would compose the official canon of scripture. And so the scriptures were protected and reproduced in many different languages by those who believed the same as Justin and Irenaeus and Athanasia uh, through persecution and book burnings until those who believed the same through the guidance of the Holy Spirit uh, Jesus says, I will not leave you orphans, uh, decided exactly which scriptures would compose in the New Testament. And uh, a little historical documentation here from, from the manuscript of the Council of Carthage in 419, we read that nothing be read in church beside the canonical scriptures. Items that besides the canonical scriptures, nothing be read in church under the name of divine scripture. So this talk, document then goes on uh, to read the same list as the scriptures that was reaffirmed to the Council of Trent. So all of the books of the Catholic Bible are there. So it was by divine providence that the authority established by God, after living the Catholic faith for longer than America has uh, even been a country, established through the tradition and magisterium of the Catholic Church what would be the complete canon uh, of scripture. <clears throat> um, this word canon is also something that actually developed, and Scott Hahn does a good job of describing this. Uh, he writes, there was a widespread consensus regarding the scriptures. There is no official canon imposed by an official act of any centralized authority. Indeed, even the word canon held a different meaning for those uh, first generations than it does for us today. Early Christians frequently used the the Greek uh, word uh, canon, which can mean measuring stick or list. It was not until the fourth century that they applied the term specifically to the list of the biblical books. For the early Christians, canon was a term that encompassed all of Christian tradition. The Greek fathers referred to the canon tes aletheus, the canon of truth, while their Latin contemporaries spoke of the regula fidei, the rule of faith. So the term encompassing the church's faith in its entirety, the scriptures, yes, but also the rituals, the customs, the orders, the disciplines handed on by the apostles. So this was in uh, Scott Hans Consuming the Word. So I would ask our Protestant friends, can you name anyone involved in establishing what the Bible would be? Uh, this is your source where you go to define your faith. Uh, who did not live by the Catholic faith? So I don't know the last time I have received an honest answer to this. Uh, the honest answer is that there was no one involved that we can see in this historical record who did not live the Catholic faith. And so through the establishment of the scriptures, if you see them as the complete word of God, then you by proxy are acknowledging the authority God established to bring them to the world. You have a Bible because God established the Holy Mass and the authority of the Catholic Church. Yeah, it's it's impossible to conceive with all of these churches springing up in all of these different countries over all these centuries. Luke, it's impossible to conceive 
that by by sheer chance, all of these different divergent churches would come to a canon of scripture that they would agree on without an essential authority kind of imposing it from above, saying this is the canon of scripture that everyone's going to follow. It, had they not done that, can you imagine how many different Bibles we would have now, how many different New Testaments we would have now? I don't even think you'd have Christianity. No. I mean, without authority, how, how do you preserve Christianity over 2,000 years in man's, with man's fallen nature? Everything would become an excuse for not being Christian. Yeah, no, I agree. So I want to take a quick detour here to add, to add some context. Uh, when I was mention, mentioning Justin and Irenaeus, uh, you have this false understanding from this tons of people that the church uh, began with Constantine. And so, you know, the history just, you know, makes that an impossibility. So the first historical record to tell us there were gospels, like I said, was Justin. And this is the same Justin that in his first apology described the Holy Mass, said that our bodies, when we partake of the Eucharist, go through transmutation, becoming flesh of Christ's glorified flesh, the same Justin who said that the fact that the Eucharist is now spread throughout the world shows it's pleasing to God. The same Justin described the necessity of water baptism, saying it destroyed original sin, calling it regeneration and being born again. He explained that you cannot receive the Eucharist until you're regenerated in baptism and have been instructed in the faith. He actually taught, you know, if you look at his first apology, you could sum the whole thing up as Satan created paganism to keep people from Catholic truth. Uh, the first one to tell us there were four Gospels was Irenaeus, disciple Polycarp, his disciple is John the Apostle, like I said earlier. Uh, he believed in the authority of the church as God's authority on earth. He taught that all of Christianity is to be united to the church at Rome in order to keep the true faith. He believed that Mary was the true Eve, mother of all the living, the true Ark of the Covenant. He taught that the Mass was a sacrifice, and of course, as we have read in his uh, Against Heresies, he taught that those who come up with interpretation of their own and disregard the authority of the church are proud sophists. So the early church didn't pull, pull punches here, and this was in the heart of the church way before things were canonized. Uh, there is no Bible for longer than America has been a country, uh, as I said, and there's no faith alone or scripture alone believers. The church lived in apostolic tradition, which is simply defined as the faith lived. Uh, the epistles are uh, are actually an afterthought, you know, while they're living this faith. And, uh, you know, a, a great source for, for images in, in this early church is uh, Butler's Lives of the Saints. So let's go here to look at uh, this early church that was protecting the scriptures through, uh, through these pagan book burnings. And uh, I want to go to a document on a, on a Pionis, a Sabina, and a Scapulades. And uh, the Romans and, and the Greeks kept pretty good records on the trials of Christians. But uh, Christians also uh, uh, kept, kept their own records of, of these trials. And we have recorded from the trial of uh, uh, the martyrs, Pionis, Sabina, and Scapulades, uh, for what was called the Decian persecution that occurred around 250 A.D., 
uh, an edict was it was issued by the Emperor Decius, and uh, this ordered everyone in the Roman Empire to perform a, perform a sacrifice to one of the Roman gods. Uh, the edict actually stated that uh, this must be done in the presence of a, a Roman magistrate, and a document confirming the sacrifice must be signed by both the Christian and the Roman magistrate who is witnessing this. So Pionis was a, a priest of the Catholic Church, and Sabina and uh, Scapoles were, were being questioned by one of the Roman magistrates uh, named uh, Polemon. And uh, Butler uh, uh, copied this uh, uh, this trial into his uh, into his book. So we're going to read from the trial. So this is actually from the manuscript, and it says that uh, Polemon says, "What God do you adore?" Pionis responds, "The Almighty God, who made heaven and earth, who made us all, who gives us all things in abundance, who we know through Jesus Christ, His Word." Now let me Polemon, interrupt you for uh, just one second. Go ahead. Uh, just for clarification, when it says, what God do you adore, is that in our understanding of adoration? It's not in the uh, simplistic human uh, interpretation of adore as being love. It's adore as actually being worship due only to God, right? That definition of of, of adore? Well, the, the pagan really wouldn't, uh, I guess, describe it as as a love. I guess it'd more describe it as, you know, uh, actually in obedience, you know, okay. so, but, uh, okay. Polyman says, uh, uh, sacrifice at least to our emperor. And Pionis says, I do not sacrifice to man. In other words, Pionis is understood the sacrifice of the Holy mass. He knew there was still a sacrifice needed. And he participates in that sacrifice. So the report says Polyman then interrogated him juridically, having all his answers taken down by a clerk who wrote on wax. How are you called, he said, to Peonius now. She said, I am called a Christian. And Polyman says, of what church? This question must be seen through its second century understanding, because Polyman is just simply asking of what group of people uh, uh, here you know, are you from? Uh, there really wasn't any other church. He's talking about different groups. So Pionis responded of the Catholic Church. And Polyman says, leaving Pionis, turned to Sabina. We read on, the holy woman had changed her name by the advice of Pionis, lest she should be found out and should fall again to the hands of her mistress, who was a pagan, and who, under the emperor Gordian, wishing to make her renounce her faith, had chained her and banished her to the mountains where she had been secretly relieved by the brethren. She was assisted by the brethren. So Polyman, uh again, addresses her. How are you called? Sabina, I am called a Christian, the Theodota. Polyman, of what church? Sabina says, of the Catholic church. Polyman, what God do you adore? Sabina, the almighty God who made heaven and earth and whom we know through Jesus Christ, his word. Polem addressing Escapolis then, and you, how are you called? Escapolis says, I am a Christian. Polem of what church? Escapolis of the Catholic Church. What God do you adore? Jesus Christ. Polem, what? He is another God? <laughs> Escapolis responds, no, he's the same that they have just confessed. So you have here in 250 AD, way before Constantine, 
people dying for the Catholic faith. And we can go farther uh, back to the time of Irenaeus, who we've already described, you know, where his origin came from, not far from John. And Irenaeus is writing about uh, this person named Blandita. Uh, and during his time, Irenaeus is, uh, is uh, describing uh, this trial. And he says, for when the Greeks having arrested the slaves, the Christians, catechumens, then use force against them in order to learn from them some secret thing practiced among Christians, these slaves having nothing to say that would meet the wishes of their tormentors, except that they had heard from their masters that the divine communion was the body and blood of Christ, and imagining that this was actually flesh and blood gave their inquisitors answer to that effect, even these later assuming such to be the case with regard to the practices of Christians, gave information regarding it to other Greeks and sought to compel the martyrs, Sanctus and Blandina, to confess under the influence of torture that the allegation was correct. To these men, Blandina replied very admirably in these words, how should those persons endure such accusations who, for the sake of the practice of piety, did not avail themselves even the flesh that was permitted them to eat? So, and back further, uh, as another example, we can show that it was written in the Apostolic Constitutions that the Bereans' first bishop was Catholic. The authority is present from the beginning. Protestants trying to use the Bereans to prove Scripture alone is foolishness. Uh, Onesimus is formerly Philemon's slave, was its, its first bishop according to the Apostolic Constitutions. And uh, they also had a list of the different bishops who attended the ecclesiastical councils after this. Are you still there, Luke? Yeah. I lost you there for a second. (laughs) Do you have any response to, to where we're at so far? No, I was waiting for you to, I'm reading along, I was waiting for you to finish, and you went silent. <laughs> I, I'm, I'm trying to condense what we're trying to do here. Okay. So we, we, but, uh, okay, so this so this trial here, I mean, it just blows away this idea that Constantine came along, he invented the Catholic Church, and, there, and, and I mean, we, like you said, we can certainly go back further. Uh, you know the use of the Catholic Church and the and the mass of the Catholic Church and 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 all that. We can certainly go back way before Constantine. Where does this idea come from that Constantine came along and invented the Catholic Church? Who first came up with that nonsense? And do you, do you have any idea where that originated? Oh Jesus, I do, and it's at the top of my head. It was it was a book put out, and it was like. Uh... Catholicism and uh, and Christianity. Uh, oh man! Yeah, yeah. Lorraine Bettner's book. There you go. There you go. It Lorraine Bettner. Roman Catholic. That's basically the Bible for uh, you know for, for the early Protestant Catholics. Okay. So as we move back in time, showing examples of authority, uh, we come to Ignatius and Clement. And Ignatius, who was a disciple of John the Apostle, as Bishop Antioch, Syria, wrote, Ignatius to the church also, which holds the presidency in the location of the country of the Romans, 
worthy of God, worthy of honor, worthy of blessing, worthy of praise, worthy of success, worthy of sanctification. And because you hold the presidency in love, named after Christ and named after the Father. In another area, Ignatius says, you, the church of Rome, have envied no one but others you have taught. I desire only that what you have enjoined in your instruction may be may remain in force. And this is Ignatius who's writing as a bishop of Antioch to the church in Rome, submitting to Rome. Mm-hmm. Ignatius was a disciple of John the Apostle. So it is reasonable to assume that the bishops of Berea would have the same sentiments, being that Paul calls the church to be united in one mind and one faith and that there be no dissensions between the members. So Ignatius submitting to the church at Rome, Clement was bishop. So does Clement show the authority of Rome if uh, Ignatius is submitting to the church? Well, from Clement, we we read in uh, his epistle to to the church at Corinth, uh, he says, If, however, any shall disobey the word spoken by him through us, let them know that they will involve themselves in transgressions and serious danger. So it was Pope Damasus who was understood to be the final authority to put the seal on the uh, authenticity on the Bible. And his succession goes back to Clement and, of course, even farther back to Peter. And Peter and Paul worked together to establish a church at Rome. Going back to Clement again, uh, we read, through envy and jealousy, the greatest and most righteous pillars of the church have been persecuted and put to death. Let us set before I the illustrious apostles, Peter, through unrighteous envy, uh, endured not one or two, but numerous labors, and where he at length suffered martyrdom, departed to the place of glory due to him. And through tradition, we know where their bodies were placed. Eusebius addresses this. He Mm -hmm. says, it is therefore recorded that Paul was beheaded in Rome itself and that Peter likewise was crucified under Nero. This account of Peter and Paul is substantiated by the fact that their names are preserved in the cemeteries of that place even to the present day. It is confirmed likewise by Caius, a member of the church who arose under Zephyrinus, bishop of Rome. He, in a published disputation with Proclus, the leader of the Phrygian heresy, speaks as follows concerning the places where the sacred corpses of the aforementioned apostles are laid. He writes, but I can show the trophies of the apostles, for if you will go to the Vatican or to the Ostian Way, you will find the trophies of those who laid the foundations of this church. So this foolishness that uh, Peter never reached, reached Rome is, 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 is totally, you know, part of that right. uh, false false doctrine of uh, Botner. And Ignatius writes, I do not, as Peter and Paul, issue commands unto you. And then we go to Irenaeus, and he, he really puts it succinctly. So the blessed apostles then having founded and built up the church, committed into the hands of Linus, the office of the episcopate of this Linus, Paul makes mention in the epistle to Timothy, to him succeeds Anacletus, and after him, in the third place of the apostles, Clement was allotted the bishopric. This man, as he has seen the blessed, uh, this man, as he has, see, has seen the blessed apostles, 
have been conversant with them <coughs> might be said might be said to have the preaching of the apostles still echoing in his ears and their traditions before his eyes. So Irenaeus knows that there are multiple bishops, overseers, and yet here he's describing the episcopate in a singular fashion because he's referring to an overseer above all overseers. <coughs> right. Um, yeah. And we see that the names of the earliest popes are, are in Scripture. Linus generally thought to have been pope from 64 or 67 to 76 or 79, uh, as mentioned in 2 Timothy uh, and uh, 421. We read, make haste to come before winter, Eubulus and, and Pudens and Linus and Claudius and all the brethren salute thee. And Clement is mentioned in Paul's letter to the Philippians uh, 4.3. And I entreat thee also by sincere companion, help those women who have labored with me in the gospel of w- gospel with Clement and the rest of my fellow laborers whose names are in the book of life. So, and all this takes us back from the establishment of the Bible through the authority of the Catholic Church back to Peter. And there were three popes and maybe four before the death of John the Apostle. And there were around 30 popes before Constantine. So obvious that God's church was living the Catholic faith for 300 years before Constantine. So we are beginning to use the reasoning process of cause and effect. But I wanted to go backwards into this biblical age by first showing the effect. Of course, the cause is in Scripture, and the effect is the authority of the Catholic Church. Yeah, and the two go hand in hand. And I want you to address this idea you talked about the, the the three-legged stool. Why don't you address this idea that there's an antagonism there, that, that the church is opposed to the scripture? Now, nothing could be further from the truth. Could you address that real quick? Well, a, I think it's impossible for it to be opposed to scripture if it preserves scripture. And, you know, the Catholics died, you know, uh, were tortured to death, you know, as they are found with scripture. The the scripture itself is you know, the Bible's a Judeo-Catholic book. I mean, uh, it was uh, Israel Zoli, the chief rabbi of Rome during uh, World War II, who uh, basically said Catholicism is the fulfillment of Judaism, and so it's it's our Judeo-Catholic book. Why would <laughs> you know? And it teaches the authority of the Catholic Church is a guide to the Church through, uh, you know, the, the its its morals and uh, its expressions of, of of love of Christ. Why it's just it's so foolish to to think otherwise. Right. Right. So history shows the authority of Church got established, and you either have a final arbiter, or you're you're tossed in the wind. It is obedience to the faith that actually nurtures our souls, clouded by our, 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 our fallen nature. And, you know, God designed it this way. Uh, from Matthew to Revelations, Peter's mentioned 155 times, and the rest of apostles combined are only mentioned 130 times. Peter is also listed first, except in uh, 1 Corinthians 3.22 and Galatians 2.9. Uh, there are exceptions to the rule here. Uh, here, uh, you know, uh, we're, we're seeing uh, Christ as head of the body, 
Paul saw himself in humility and separated from the pillars of the church, who he described here as uh, James, Peter, and John. So what was Jesus telling Peter and the church uh, in this discourse I'm about to read? He said to him the third time, Simon, son of John, loveth thou me? Peter was grieved because he had said to him the third time, lovest thou me? And he said to him, Lord, thou knowest all things. Thou knowest that I love thee. He said to him, feed my sheep. So he was telling Peter to lead his church. He was giving him a kingly supremacy. John knew Peter's role. He wrote this into the scriptures, uh, a power of honor and jurisdiction. And to feed God's sheep is to be the shepherd of God's flock. He says, feed God's sheep, not his own sheep, but the, but the family of God. And uh, we got some really good references to this. This is one of my, one of the first books I uh, you know uh, I read when I really started getting into the faith. Uh, from Jesus, Peter, and the Keys, uh, in a quote by a Mr. Sungenis, we read, There's a change from feed, Greek bosque, to shepherd, pomaine. Peter is told to feed the lambs, but both shepherd and feed the sheep. Of the two, pomaine is the more technical and comprehensive of the two. It used uh, of ruling in other texts. Matthew 2, 6, Revelations 2, 27, uh, 12, 5, and 19, 5. So whereas Bosque refers to only feeding, in each one of these three word exchanges, there's a movement uh, from the weaker to the stronger. The weaker words, Arnaia, Philo, and Bosque, are replaced with the stronger words, uh, Probatia, Agape, and Pomain. The progression from weaker to stronger helps to show in a preliminary way the parameters and requirements for the ministry that Peter will soon undertake under divine assistance that he will eventually receive from the Holy Spirit. Peter will inaugurate his rule over the clergy and the laity that in turn will be followed by his successors. At Pentecost, Peter received the complete installment of this divine assistance. So uh, he shows the text showing going from friendly love, Greek philio, to profound love, agape, and a change from lambs, Greek arnia, to sheep, probatia. And, of course, we don't want to forget telling us how, uh, Jesus telling us how Satan will attack this authority. So, mm-hmm. and the Lord Simon, Simon, behold, Satan hath desire to have you, that he may sift you as wheat. But I have prayed for thee, that thy faith fail not, and thou being once converted, confirm thy brethren. The first use of the word you is, is plural here. Of course, you is plural. And showing that Satan has a desire to destroy the church. So the second reference to the use of the word thee is Jesus praying that Peter, as head of the church, his chief shepherd, who will be given judicial authority, his faith will be strengthened, and he will strengthen his brethren. This has to be the rest of the apostles, but in the spiritual sense, it's referring to the 2,000-year-old rock of unity. Uh, it's the church as a whole. Uh, it is what keeps the church as one. Yeah, you can kind of see that. You can see this playing out in the 
in the small frame, and you can see it playing out in the large frame, that Jesus was talking to Peter, but you can also see how he was talking to the entire church through this exchange, saying that Satan wants to sift you like sand through his fingers, and this this is what we see in Protestantism, the sifting of, 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 of the Christians through the hands of Satan with all these different denominations and and then and and yet Jesus says to Peter who is the Pope I pray that your faith will not fail so it is still the 2,000 years later is still the responsibility of the modern Peter Francis to hold the church together while Satan is more than ever trying to sift the entire faith and even Catholics uh, through his through his fingers. Yep, Satan will plant weeds in the wheat in the kingdom, and that kingdom is the church. So I want to now turn to this famous Council of Jerusalem. We discussed this before, but it, it applies here also. Uh, this was the mustard seed, the the first council, of the magisterium of the Catholic Church, led by the first pope who was given judicial authority by God. Now, you can't truly look for the Catholic Church as you see it today in Scripture, because in Scripture was the foundation that would later develop into the city on a hill that could not be hidden, that would spread out throughout the entire world. And you're not going to see the exact same thing you're going to see the mustard seed of the same thing because the church as a living entity grew and even grew in knowledge of itself. And this knowledge was codified by the magisterium and councils. And yet almost all of the doctrine of the church was in the heart of the church from its earliest days. So you have all these Protestants always saying, well, I don't see the Catholic church in, you know, in, the, in the first century church. No, you're not. You're going to see you know, the mustard seed of it. So the Council of Jerusalem in 51 AD was the image of the mustard seed that grew into the biggest tree and spread throughout the world. The same structure that was present in, in this council has grown and has survived for 2,000 years while kingdoms rose and fell. And even this fact over 2,000 years should prove that the, the church has been protected by God for, you know, for 2,000 years. Right. Uh, it's, it's, it's a sustained miracle in itself. So what we see at the council is that Peter, after establishing the church at Rome, came back to Jerusalem to, to lead this council. Now, remember, this is, this is during a time of persecution, and Romans were always looking for the king on the chessboard. So these things were happening, and things are being written in, uh, in a guarded way a lot also. And they did not want to expose the king on the chessboard, but people inside the church still knew what was going on. Uh, in Butler's Lives, we read that Eusebius St. Jerome and the old Roman calendar published by Bucharest say that St. Peter held the see of Rome 25 years, though he was often absent upon his apostolic functions in other countries. According to this chronology, many places first arrival at Rome in the second year of the reign of Claudius of Christ, 42, but all circumstances prove it to have been in the year 40, the 12th after the death of Christ in 39, St. Peter went again into the east in 51, was present at the general council held by the apostles at Jerusalem. So Protestants try to say that Peter 
was not in charge of this council. James was. But the, this makes no sense when you take in all of the information. You know, James was the host bishop in the, in the same way even today they're host bishops for the pope. But notice what, what's happening at this council. After Peter spoke, after Peter, uh, everyone held their peace. Uh, Peter, uh, Peter has spoken. You know, we heard this. Uh, uh, Peter has spoken through Leo. You know, the 800 years later. And uh, well, well, let's read the council. So, and all the multitude held their peace, and they heard Barnabas and Paul telling what great signs and wonders God had wrought among the Gentiles by them. And after they had held their peace, James answered, saying, Men, brethren, hear me. And hath related how God first visited to take the Gentiles, a people, to his name. And to this agree the words of the prophet, as is written, After these things I will return and will, re- and will rebuild the tabernacle of David, the house of David, which has fallen down, and the ruins thereof I will rebuild. And I will set it up. So the multitude at this council was silent after Peter did something that shocked the ancient world. Peter had a sword. And a lot of people don't catch uh, catch on this. Peter, by explaining that both Jews and Gentiles are saved by the grace of God and not Mosaic law, just separated the church from 1,300 years of of Mosaic law. Mm -hmm. And those who followed Peter, you know, only gave an indication of acceptance, which is just uh, amazing in itself. They did not tell Peter, this is blasphemous. You're going against you know, 1,300 years uh, of God's teaching. You're destroying, you know, what God established. Who are you? They did not tell Peter, you have no authority. In fact, Paul and Barnabas confirms this by talking about how they experienced this grace among Gentiles. And James, as the bishop of, of, of Jerusalem, uh, said something very profound. You know, uh, and what he was saying, you know, uh, I can't emphasize this enough. He, he's quoting Amos. Uh, he's quoting Amos where Amos says, In that day I will raise up the tabernacle of David that has fallen down. I will close up the breaches of the walls thereof and repair what was fallen. I will rebuild it as in the days of old, that they may possess the remnant of Edom and all nations, because my name is invoked among them, saith the Lord. Doth these things, all nations. This is something that the Jews were told by their prophets hundreds of years back that Gentiles would actually know God. And right here is this foundation of the prophecy fulfilled. At the same time, it's reestablishing the kingdom of David in the church. All nations, those from all nations, will enter the body of Christ, the sacramental kingdom of David. In addition, it was not James who had a vision that would influence the decision of this council, but it was the first pope of the universal Catholic church. So remember Peter's vision in Acts 10. Let's read it. And on the next day, while they were going on their journey and drawing nigh to the city, Peter went up to the high parts of the house to pray. About the sixth hour, and being hungry, he was desirous to taste somewhat. And as they were preparing, there came upon him an ecstasy of mind. 
And he saw the heaven open and a certain vessel descending as it were a great linen sheet led down by the four corners from heaven to the earth, wherein were all manner of four-footed beasts and creepy things of the earth and fowls and air. And there came a voice to him, Arise, Peter, kill and eat. But Peter said, Far be it from me, for I never did eat anything that was common and unclean. And the voice spoke to him again the second time, That which God hath cleansed do not call common. And this was done thrice, and presently the vessel was taken up into heaven. So soon after this vision, Peter baptized the Gentile family of Cornelius. And to make a long story short, what did Peter say to Cornelius? We read it in Acts 10.28. And he said to them, you know how abominable it is for man that is a Jew to keep company or to come unto one another nation. But God hath showed me to call no man common or unclean. So every single one of these Jews had this background in their mind of being completely separated from these Gentiles. Uh, of course, Paul didn't, but, the, but many, many, many in the community. And so it, this shows, when you read this, and he, he didn't refer to food here. He referred to human beings. And he said to them, you now uh, you know how abominable it is for a man that is a Jew to keep company or to come unto one another. So Peter's authority was exact with nobody mm -hmm. questioning, even though they had this understanding beforehand. So an Orthodox scholar by the name of Nicholas Collinsine wrote in his book, Peter's Place in the Early Church, says, For Peter's actions after the ascension gave us a means to discover the real meaning of the words that Christ had spoken to him. Jerusalem is the place where Peter stands forth in the Pentecostal church and surrounded by the twelve. He is never disassociated from them in the gospel. Here he first shows that he could be a rock, rock of the church, as Christ called him when he said, Thou art Peter, and on this rock I will, be my, uh, I will build my church. At Jerusalem again, Peter was to show a faith that did not fail, and acted out Christ's promise. Thou then, when thou hast turned again, established thy brethren. And still at Jerusalem, Peter became shepherd of the church and carried out Christ's injunction, Feed my lambs, feed my sheep. So it was Peter, the first pope of the Catholic Church, who separated the church from 1,300 years of Mosaic law. And it was by divine providence, God wanted the first pope to, be, to baptize the first Gentiles into the church, even though it was Paul who was focused on going out uh, to the Gentiles and Peter to the Jews. And St. Chrysostom tells us uh, why when he wrote, if anyone would say, how did James receive the chair of Jerusalem? I would reply that he appointed Peter a teacher, not of the chair, but of the world. Yeah, and, you know, it's easy for us to play Monday morning quarterback. And, you know, we understand what, what Peter's vision was. 
in terms of the linen cloth being lowered down from the sky was not about food. It was about the Gentiles. But we only understand that because the blanks have been filled in for us. And yet there's no scripture that Peter had to rely on or to read or to be inspired by to learn that. So, again, this is what we see, a repeat of Matthew 16, 18, uh, when Jesus says to Peter, what, what you, uh, this has been revealed to you by heaven above, not by flesh and blood. So, it, it's amazing that Peter is able to make this connection. And it very, very clearly shows to me, this very, very clearly shows to me the guidance of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is, it, it, Peter is not following the, the scriptures. He's actually leading the scriptures. He's showing what, how the scriptures are being fulfilled, how the scriptures are the fulfillment of the Old Testament uh, um, typologies. It's, it's absolutely amazing. You can see the guidance of the Holy Spirit leading Peter here. And when Peter spoke, that was it. That was, that was the rule among that whole congregation. So, it would never have put together the Bible if it did not believe itself to be the reestablished kingdom of David. So, from here, besides the council, let's look at how we know the church is the reestablished kingdom of David. Now, the Jews looked to Jesus on Palm Sunday as the coming of their king because their own prophets showed them that the, the kingdom of David would be restored, reestablished at, at a certain time. Uh, uh, John twelve thirteen 13 uh, uh, expresses this. Uh, it took the palm branches, uh, palm trees, and went forth to meet him. And cried, Hosanna, blessed is he that comes in the name of the Lord, the King of Israel. So they're looking for a king because of their own scriptures, but they didn't understand the sacramental kingdom. So Jesus named Simon Rock. Well, there is a name change uh, uh, in scripture. There's a higher calling. There's establishment of a, a very important peace in the salvation mystery. So through Isaiah, God, call, uh, God called Abraham Rock. Uh he wrote, give ear to me, you that follow that which is just, and you that seek the Lord, look unto the rock whence you have been hewn, and to the hole in the pit which you are dug out. Look to Abraham, your father. So both Abraham and Peter are referred to as rock. So uh, <clears throat> let's quickly dispel this, this foolishness that Peter is not the rock, and we'll add emphasis to this in a little while. Uh, one of the problems with Sola Scripture is that it constantly places Protestants, uh, Protestants odds with other Protestants. So uh, let's let Protestants defend Peter as a rock here. Uh, William Hendrickson, a uh, member of the Reformed Christian Church, who was a professor of New Testament literature at Calvin Seminary, he wrote, The meaning is you are Peter, that is rock, and upon this rock is on you. Peter, I will build my church. Our Lord, speaking Aramaic, probably said, and I say to you, you're a kepha, and on this kepha I will build my church. Jesus then is promising Peter that he is going to build his church on him. Explanation mark. I accept this view. Uh, Gerhard Meyer, leading Lutheran theologian, writes, 
Nowadays, a broad consensus has emerged, which, in accordance with the words of the text, applies the promise to Peter as a person. On this point, liberal H.J. Holtzman, E. Schweitzer, and conservative Coleman uh, flew. Theologians agree, as well as representatives of the Roman Catholic exegesis. Um, and uh, Darnold uh, A. Carson, this is a Baptist professor in the New Testament, uh, <clears throat> he wrote, although it is true that Petros and Petra can mean stone and rock, respectively, in early Greek, the distinction is largely confined to poetry. Moreover, the underlying Aramaic is in this case unquestionable, and most probably kepha was used in both clauses, your kepha and on this kepha, since the word was used both for a name and for a rock, the Peshitta written in Syriac, a language cognitive with Aramaic, makes no distinction between the words in the two clauses. The Greek makes the distinction between Petros and Petra simply because it is trying to preserve the pun, and in Greek Petra could not serve as a masculine name. So, Abraham was the physical rock in the Old Testament, the Old Testament patriarch, Peter the physical in the New, the New Testament patriarch, uh, both supported by the spiritual rock of Christ. Just as Abraham was a physical founder of a nation, the promise of Abraham fulfilled includes Peter as the physical foundation of the new nation, a sacramental nation. So there, there's nothing new here when it comes to the structure uh, what happened with Abraham is what happened with Peter in the fulfillment of the promise of Abraham in in the chosen people. So I guess, uh, you know, I, I need to make clear here that Jesus is the ultimate founder who established both Abraham and Peter in order to establish unity of his nation. So when Jesus walked the earth, the Jews spread out all over the known world, and they prayed for a new king. Uh, for the kingdom of David to be reestablished. Yeah, and it's easy for people to see Jesus as that king. It's easy for people to see Jesus as, as, as the fulfillment of the Davidic kingdom. What's harder and harder for them to see is that Jesus passed that on uh, just as the chief steward act, acted in the stead of the king, Jesus passed that on to Peter to act in his stead. But it's yes. very, very clear that that's exactly what happened. And uh, it's interesting that the Protestants that you quoted said that they a couple of times said that Jesus probably addressed Peter as Kephas. Well, we know for a fact that he did. Uh, Paul addressed Peter as Kephas, and in John 1.42, we see Peter is called Kephas, which is translated Peter. So Simon was renamed Kephas, which is translated Peter. So we know for a fact that Jesus used uh, Kephas, which is which kind of blows this whole, you know, you've heard the, the old little stone argument that big <laughs> rock and little stone. And, and the fact of the matter is that even in the Greek, the word for little stone is not petros. It's, it's lithos. And in, uh, and in Greek, I mean, in, um, in Aramaic, uh, the word is enva for little stone. And yet 
we don't see either one of those words used in regard to to Peter. So this idea of the little pebble is it's just garbage. And this whole body of information we're we're explaining make makes it overwhelming that Peter's the yeah. rock. So in looking at the origin of the Catholic Church, the Jews understood through the prophet Jeremiah that the throne of David would always have a leader. Uh, in Jeremiah 33, 17, we read, Thus saith the Lord, there shall not be cut off from David a man to sit uh, upon the throne of the house of Israel. So Daniel told us that the kingdom w- would never be destroyed. So in uh, Daniel writes, but in the days of those kingdoms, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that shall never be destroyed, and his kingdom shall not be delivered up to another people, uh, and it shall break in pieces and shall consume all these kingdoms, and it shall, shall, shall stand forever. <coughs> so like you're discussing the steward, uh, in the old kingdom, there's a, there's a chief steward of the house of God. And in Isaiah 22, Shebna is described as having an office in the kingdom. So an office shows dynastic succession because when Isaiah is writing, he is showing this office 400 years after David established the kingdom. So in Isaiah 22.1, Kim is called a father from which we get the word papa or pope. And the pope is the chief steward of the reestablished kingdom of David. And we just proved his authority by showing how he separated the church from 1,300 years of Mosaic law. So in Isaiah 22:22, we see the keys being passed from Shebna to Eliakim, showing the keys being not only a symbol of authority, but also to show the dynastic succession. So the apostles understood this, and that is why you saw the authority at Rome being passed down from Peter to Linus, down to the papal leaders of every council of the church, to our present pope fulfilling the prophecy of Jeremiah, that there always be a leader on the, on the throne. So I would ask our Protestant friends, does Eliakim, as the new palace administrator in Isaiah 22, 23, in the kingdom of David, have a throne of honor granted to him? Uh, does this throne include, uh, include placing on him the dignity of the king by giving to him as the ambassador of the king, the king's robes? We see this in Isaiah 22:21, And I will clothe him with thy robe, and will strengthen him with thy girdle, and will give him thy power into his hand. And he shall be as a father to the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and to the house of Judah. So the clothing with thy robe is clothing with thy dignity. And this is why Catholics kiss the ring of the Pope, because of that dignity God established in, the, in, in this office. And you got to repeat right. the words, humility, 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 and obedience. Uh, right. Satan has none. He has none. So, right. Oscar, so, so, yeah. so Oscar Coleman, a, a Lutheran and biblical scholar, addressed this. We read, he says, in Matthew sixteen nineteen, it is presupposed that Christ is the master of the house who has the keys to the kingdom of heaven with which to open to those who come in. Just as in Isaiah 22:22, the Lord lays the keys of the house of David on the shoulders of a servant Eliakim. So Jesus commits to Peter the keys of his house, the kingdom of heaven, 
and therefore installs him as administrator of the house. Yeah. And this is the kind of thing that when when you I've heard I love the way that you describe the entire Bible as a seamless fabric. When you see all the different pieces connect and you see you recognize the church as a fulfillment of the Davidic kingdom, that's when you start to recognize uh, uh, these things too. For example, in the Davidic kingdom, there was a specific office uh, given to the mother of the king, and that specific office was the office of the queen mother, and the job of the queen mother was to take uh, petitions that would be then relayed to the to the king. So the the queen mother was actually an intercessor before the king. People would approach the queen mother with their requests and desires or what have you, and the queen mother would intercede for them. Well, naturally, Luke, if you recognize Jesus as the king, well, you have to recognize Mary as the queen mother. And so when you're Catholic and you look at all of these foundations of how the Old Testament kingdom was constructed, you realize God doesn't do anything accidental. And and the Old Testament model is basically God putting together a model. It's almost like blueprints. Here's the blueprints of what it's going to look like when it's completed, not just on earth, but in heaven, this hierarchy continues in heaven, and we see that in the book of Revelation. It's all fascinating, the way it's all right there, but you have to know what you're looking for. Yeah, and it's Protestantism took a cookie cutter to the seamless fabric, and what's left outside that enclosed cookie cutter is everything that puts everything together. Yeah. You know, you could take the, all that rest of the dough and roll it up into another ball and start cutting. I, I don't know it if again. it's fair to even say they took a cookie cutter to it. I'd say they took a lawnmower to it. <laughs> okay, I'm being nice here. <laughs> <laughs> okay, I'm sorry. I digress. Please continue. <laughs> so, uh, again, to Scott Butler's book, uh, Jesus, Peter, and the Keys. There, there's a reference to a Jewish rabbi who lived in, in 70 A.D. Uh, this is quoted from a book called uh, The Pope, the Vicar of Christ by, by uh, Francis J. Uh, Ripley. He, he, he writes, uh, whatever thou shalt bind. In these words, Jesus was conferring on Peter in a special and unique way. Power was conferred on the apostles as a body on another occasion. He was simply using the language of the day. Everyone knew what it meant. The rabbis were said to bind when they forbade something and to loose when they permitted it. Know of a rabbi, uh, Nechonia or Neyonia, uh, <laughs> his Jewish names, who lived about right. 70. Uh, he always put the following prayer before his lessons. May it please thee, O Yahweh, my God and God of my fathers that we may not declare impure what is pure and pure what is impure, that we may not bind what is loosed or loose what is bound. Now, 
For our Protestant friends, with this in mind, what did Peter do at the Council of Jerusalem in the reestablishing the kingdom of David? He declared what is pure through the power of the keys, through the influence of the Holy Spirit by way of his vision, separating the church from 1,300 years of Mosaic law. But you just saw the beginning of the doctrine of infallibility established by God. Uh, Again, in Jesus, Peter, and the Keys, uh, Butler quotes a a Protestant scholar named R.T. France. He says, these terms, binding and loosing, thus refer to a teaching function, and more specifically, the halakhic or halakhic pronouncements, (laughs) i.e. relative to laws not written down in the Jewish scriptures. Now get this, but based on oral interpretation of them which are to be binding on the people of God. In that case, Peter's power of the keys, declared in Matthew 69, is not so much that the doorkeeper who decides who may may or not be admitted to the kingdom of heaven, but that of the stewards, as in Isaiah 22, generally regarded as the Old Testament background to the metaphor of the keys here, whose keys of office enable him to regulate the affairs of the household. Through the power of the keys, Halakha was passed on to the Catholic Church. Falsely understood the use of the word the way as the name of the first church. When the apostles were referring to Halakha, uh, the walk of the Christian in living obedience to the faith of the religion and ritual of the new covenant in the sacramental life. The early church actually clearly defined confession as part of this Holocaust. Jesus says, I did not I did not come to abolish the law, but to fulfill the law. And you know, as Rabbi uh, uh said, Catholicism is the fulfillment of Judaism. So in the Didache, uh written about seventy eighty or, or Didache, <laughs> Confess your, it says, confess your sins in church and do not go up to your prayer with an evil conscience. This is the way of life. On the Lord's day, gather together, break bread, and give thanks after confessing, confessing your transgressions so that your sacrifice may be pure. So obedience to the faith and the chair of Moses, which became the chair of Peter, is the way. Paul says, who is predestined the Son of God, and power according to the spirit of sanctification by the direction of our Lord Christ and the dead, by whom we have received grace and apostleship for obedience of the Hebrew word to refer to the Jewish halakha, means go or walk. Halakha, then, is the way a Jew is directed to behave in every aspect of life, encompassing civil criminal, and religious. So, this is amazing. This is decree from which we get the Latin dogmata. In Halakha, you also see the beginning of the canon law in papal bulls. And where did we see this first decree? <laughs> I'm going to go back to it again. This is so amazing. When Peter separated the church from 1,300 years of Mosaic law through the power of the keys. So, what would be a biblical example of, of Halakhic? Uh, we saw it as a temporary law at the Council of Jerusalem so that Jews in the church were not scandalized by Gentiles eating food, which uh, was on pagan altars. And we read, uh, but that we write unto them 
that they refrain, refrain themselves from the pollutions of idols and from fornication, from being strangled and from blood. In the, in the writings of uh, what was going on with the martyrs' church, they were talking about uh, uh, one priest, not because it was you know unlawful, but because it, uh, there were Jews there, uh, or, or it could create a scandal uh, that he did not eat the food uh, that was given to him from uh, uh, that was on a pagan altar. Hmm. You know, it's fascinating. When you talk about the Didache, written in 70 A.D., and you talk about this uh, this Jewish rabbi um, who was referred to by Scott Butler, who lived in 70 A.D., and and it, it's just amazing that that seems to be a climatic time. That seems to be a, 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 a dramatic, a climatic time turning point because. Um, you know, we all remember the the seminal and tragic event, earth-shaking event that happened that year. That uh, that would have been a it would have been a shock to the the Jews of that time. It was unthinkable that the temple in Jerusalem could be destroyed, and and yet there it was. Uh, among all this other earth-shaking change. That was kind of the exclamation point on top of it, right? That, okay, the the old order is gone. The old order is done. That was kind of the, I mean, do you agree that was kind of the exclamation point on all of it? Uh, it, it rocked their entire world. I mean, I mean, their entire Levitical priesthood, you know, just basically disappeared. Yeah. Yeah. So St. B, who lived... Uh, from about 673 A.D. to 735, he wrote, Blessed Peter, so received the keys of the kingdom and the supremacy of judicial power, that all who believe throughout the world may understand that whosoever shall cut themselves off in any way cannot enter the kingdom of heaven. Peter received the keys to heaven as a sign to all the children of the church, so that if they separate from the one faith which teaches they give up all hope of being acquitted of their guilt and of entering the eternal portals. And I say unto you that Peter is the doorkeeper whom I will not contradict, but I will obey his decrees in everything. Lest when I come to the gates of the kingdom of heaven, there should be no one to open them, since he will be my adversary who is proven to have possession of the keys. And of course, this great saint does not separate Peter from the office of the papacy. This is one of the reasons why every time I have a conversation with Protestants and they begin to evade by not answering because their answer would in turn support the Catholic faith, I, I pray that they are in a state of invincible ignorance and that they are not destroying their own souls. I mean, it's harsh, but if you accept the facts of what the church truly is, you can't get around it. Right, this goes back to what we talked about near the beginning, that if a person does what he knows is wrong, for him this is sin. If he, if he knows the truth and refuses to accept it, um, and and you're right, this this is the whole question is 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 the ignorance vincible or invincible? In other words, uh, it's it's not whether a person knows the truth or not; it's whether through their own efforts, 
their own sincere efforts, they can know the truth. Uh, it is it is one thing to be ignorant. It is another thing to be willfully ignorant or negligently ignorant. Ignorance that can be overcome through a modest amount of effort. And that is the $64,000 question, isn't it? Yep. And the, again, it's discern, I guess it's determined by how much truth is actually revealed to a soul through grace. Mm-hmm. And so if, if that soul is not moving toward that truth revealed, then it is losing any kind of grace that, that it has by being disobedient to the Holy Spirit. Let's solidify this understanding of Peter's authority with kind of a shotgun approach across history. So Tertullian in 200, uh, uh, lived about 200 to 220 AD, said, was anything hidden from Peter who was called the rock whereupon the church was built? St. Hippolytus, 225, Peter the rock of the church. Origen, see what is said by the Lord to Peter, that great foundation of the church. Cyprian, 246, on him he builds the church, and unto him he gives the commandment to feed the sheep. Pope uh, Firmilian, around 254 AD, again, way before Constantine. But how great is his, Pope Stephen's heir, how exceeding his blindness who says remission of sins, can be given in the synagogue of the heretics, not abiding on the foundation of the one church, which was once first established by Christ on a rock. May hence be understood that to Peter alone, Christ said, whatever shall be bound. So Eusebius, writing about 325, writes, that powerful and great one, the apostles, who on account of his excellence was the leader of the rest. Of course, we could go on and on, but one thing is clear. Contrary to the teaching of Protestantism, which can never rise above opinion, the scriptures were actualized for the Catholic Church. The church flowed from scripture before a word of scripture was written down, before a word of the New Testament was written down. It flowed past scripture, developing into its physical reality. And for the first 1,400 years of Christianity, Christianity as a whole lived within this physical reality of the reestablished kingdom of David. Protestantism is not in Scripture. And you know, Protestantism took that cookie cutter to the Judeo-Catholic book. Lawnmower. So, <laughs> so Matthew 23, 2 shows that the Jews understood the authority of the chair of Moses through which Jesus fulfilled in the chair of Peter. So we read here, Then Jesus spoke to the multitudes and to his disciples, saying the scribes and the Pharisees have sitten on the chair of Moses. And uh, so he says, all things, therefore, whatever they shall say to you, observe and do. So Jesus, before Pentecost, is telling the Jews under the law to do as the authority of the old kingdom tells you to do. Mm -hmm. And Jesus said, I did not come to abolish the law, but to fulfill the law. And this chair never went away. And now has yeah, it's a very power. Interesting. It's very interesting because the Latin term for that from the chair is ex cathedra, which is, uh, it, it just shows that this is the model of infallibility right here because Jesus is very, very clearly telling us, even if they don't, practice what they preach, even if they don't act the way that they should. 
You must do whatever they tell you to do because they sit in the chair of Moses. Well, Moses was a precursor to Christ. And Pope Francis, you know, there are a lot of people that criticize him. He gets criticized a lot. But he sits in the chair of Peter. You have he to respect the, the office established by God. Yeah, period. It's not optional. Jesus didn't say that, you know, you had to personally, you know, like the Pope or think that he was the greatest communicator or, or what have you. Uh, Jesus said, you must, going back to Matthew 20, 23.3, Jesus doesn't say here, uh, you know, it'd be a good idea if you obeyed him or what, would you think about obeying him? I don't see that here. He says, you must obey and follow everything whatsoever they teach. Well, that that is true with the with the papacy today, and that is the glue that holds the church together. And we also understand that you know there's weeds of the wheat in the kingdom of heaven planted by Satan, and you know there have been bad popes, there have been anti popes, mm-hmm. so we don't follow the pope into sin. You know, we don't follow the pope into going against. The, the doctrine of faith and morals if there's a bad pope. So whatever is bound on earth is bound in heaven. This chair has the power to wipe out 1,300 years of Mosaic law, obviously. A, a cardinal named uh, Kajetan uh, referred to Caiaphas speaking prophetically from Moses' seat. He says, Jesus Christ has given testimony on these matters. Why should the faithful be astonished at such a great help given by divine grace to Christ's vicar on earth? Grace aided Caiaphas when he held pontifical office over the synagogue as it was losing its rightful character and was persecuting Christ himself. By reason of his pontifical office, he was given prophetic speech as John the Evangelist bore witness. He did not say this on his own, but being a high priest, For that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the people. Why else did John reveal this, if not to reveal this, if not to reveal the special divine assistance given in one in pontifical office? So Mm. notice that nowhere in the Old Testament do you find reference to this authoritative seat of Moses. And Jesus referring to it, he's referring to unwritten tradition. So Jesus here is beginning to bind the church to an unwritten tradition in an authoritative office, which is, is really fascinating. So mm. scripture proves that even if a bad pope has ex cathedra authority, the Holy Spirit in defending the truths of the church will work even with a bad pope. But the Holy Spirit works through Caiaphas, who fornicated with pagan Rome and the killing of Christ. So Jesus meant it when he said Satan will plant weeds of the wheat in the kingdom of heaven because the kingdom is God's church. And Paul says, whoever hateth its own flesh, no one loves and nourishes his own flesh as Christ does the church. So Augustine said Peter was made the pastor of the church as Moses was made the ruler of the Jewish people. There you go. I mean, it all all fits together like a hand in a glove. It's very, very very easy to see. And this this is why... When I was younger, I couldn't be persuaded to leave uh, the Catholic Church for Protestantism because even 
as a young man with my limited understanding of scripture, this came through clear. I saw very, very clearly Jesus establishing a church. Um, and, and I have, I have people with a straight face telling me, oh, no, it's just all you just have to believe and, you know, you can interpret the scriptures, you know, the Holy Spirit will lead you to your own interpretation of scriptures. Uh, I mean, we can very, very clearly see Jesus says that the Pharisees and scribes sit on the chair of Moses and you must observe and do whatever they tell you. Uh, Jesus didn't say he was going to abolish that authority. He said he was going to replace it. He said the authority that you have would be taken from you and given to another who will bear its fruit. But he never said that authority would be abolished. So that authority must exist today. Uh, it's just, it just following the, the, the clues to their logical progression, there has to be a church that Jesus Christ established today. And fortunately for us, there's, there's only one that's even claiming to be that church. So it's not hard to find. No. And, and think about what I said to, toward the beginning when I said I asked the, the Protestants, okay, uh, if you believe in Scripture alone, then show me a, a verse that you pr- think proves Scripture alone and your exegesis of that verse. Then show me how it doesn't contradict the hundreds of verses showing an authoritative church. So right. think of that, and uh, along with everything that we've discussed today, and yet there's, there's even more uh, uh, to, to build this authority up. Uh, with these things in mind, everything before, and even bringing to mind our last discussion on the mystical body of Christ, we should have a much clearer vision when it comes to what Paul meant when he says you have come to Mount Zion, to the New Jerusalem. Mount Zion is through which the wisdom of God goes out into the world. Isaiah tells us, and many people shall go and say, come and let us go to the mountain of the Lord and to the house of God of Jacob. He will teach us his ways. We will walk in his paths. For the law shall come forth from Zion and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. We should have a clearer understanding when he said, but I've tarried long that thou mayest know how that thou oughtest behave thyself in the house of God which is the church of the living God, the pillar and ground of the truth. When he said that the manifold wisdom of God be known to the principalities and powers in heavenly places through the church. Uh, from, from here, I want to go to a series of, of scriptures and interpretations that, that really places this in perspective. And uh, 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 w- w- why don't you uh, give input right here, then, then, then we'll move on. No, I... I want you to go right into this. I'm looking forward to hearing this. Okay. Well, this uh, this is this is something I, I, I also found, and uh, I don't know where I got it from, but the, the obviously it's a Catholic who wrote it, and it, it, it puts everything that we've uh, discussed so far in perspective. And uh, it says, Origins of Christ's Church. The Bible teaches that the true church began with Christ over 1,900 years ago, not with men or women, 15 or 19 centuries later. It was founded when our Lord spoke the following and other similar words. Matthew 28, 18-20. And Jesus came and spake uh, unto them, saying, All power is given unto me in heaven and in earth. 
Go ye therefore and teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Ghost, teaching them to deserve all things whatsoever I have commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the world. So the comment uh, section here says, History proves that the first Protestant church was the Lutheran, founded in 1517 by the ex-priest Martin Luther. All others uh, of some 33,800 sects have been created since then. And it goes on to the authority of Christ's church. The Bible teaches that the rulers of Christ's church have authority, which must be obeyed in matters of religion. Hebrews 13, 17, Obey them that have the rule over you, and submit yourselves, for they watch for your souls, as they that must give account, that they may do it with joy and not with grief, for this is profitable to you. Matthew 18, 17, And if ye shall neglect to hear them, tell it unto the church. But if ye neglect to hear the church, let him be to thee as a heathen and publican. Luke ten sixteen, he that heareth you heareth me. He that despiseth you, and despiseth me, and he that despiseth me despiseth him that sent me. Matthew sixteen nineteen, I will give you the, the unto you Peter the keys, and we already we already showed this. Uh, and um, in the comment again, the apostles repeatedly claimed this authority. Look at Galatians one eight, John one ten, Acts fifteen twenty three and twenty eight. Hence, the laws or precepts of the true church are founded upon the same authority as the commandments of God, for the church of Christ has authority to act in his name. And this last section, infallibility of Christ's church. Example, that it cannot err in teaching Christ's religion. It says, the Bible teaches that not the Bible itself, but the Holy Ghost was the teacher of the apostles. John fourteen twenty six. The, but the Comforter, which is the Holy Ghost, whom the Father will send in my name, he shall teach you all things and bring all things to remembrance, whatsoever said unto you. John sixteen thirteen. Howbeit, when he, the Spirit of truth, has come, he will guide you unto all truth. Acts 1, 8. But ye shall receive the power after that the Holy Ghost is come upon you. And ye shall be witness unto me, both in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria, unto the uttermost parts of the earth. So the comment here is, in consequence, the true church was necessarily infallible, being as St. Paul said in 1 Timothy 5.15, the pillar in the ground of the truth. Two, the Bible teaches that the church has Christ always with it, and the Holy Ghost always to guide it not only during the first century, but during all future ages. Matthew uh, 28, 20, teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I have commanded you, and lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the world. John fourteen six, and I will pray the Father, and he shall give you another comforter, that he may abide with you forever. And the comment on this, it says, hence it is an insult to Christ, and the Holy Spirit to say that God's church fell into error and had to be reformed by Luther, Calvin, and uh, other men or women. Mm-hmm. So in the perpetuity of the, of the original church, the Bible teaches that the visible church of Christ has had and will ever have uninterrupted existence. We show this over and over again, actually. And Matthew twenty eight nineteen, <clears throat> we hear, Go ye therefore and teach all nations, and baptize them in the name of the Father, and Son, and the Holy Ghost, 
Lo, I am with you always, even till the end of the age. Matthew 16, 18, the gates of hell should not prevail against it. So in the comment, hence the theory that Christ's church, which began with Christ, failed because non-exist, uh, became non-existent for more than a thousand years uh, or more, and then was revived by either Luther, Calvin, or Knox, or some other man or woman, is ridiculous and untrue. It's not just ridiculous and untrue, it's blasphemous. Yes, yes. So in closing here, uh, to put things together, Jesus came from the line of David as king. Therefore, scripture shows the begots. Jesus said, I will build my church. We know prophecy tells us that the kingdom of David would last forever. The apostles believe they're in the last days where prophecy is fulfilled. So at the Council of Jerusalem, James quoted the prophet Amos, showing the prophecy fulfilled that the kingdom of David has been reestablished in the church for both Jews and Gentiles. Paul said, writing to those who are baptized into the church, living the sacramental life and obedience to the faith, you have come to Mount Zion, to the new Jerusalem. And Mount Zion, of course, as we read, is the prophecy uh, is that the mountain is the mountain of the Lord, which we go to in order to learn the wisdom of God. So mm -hmm. Jesus told the church, if they hear you, they hear me. If they reject you, then they reject me and the one who sent me. He said, behold, I will be with you always, even to the, to the consummation of the world. He said, if they don't listen to the church, treat them as heathen publicans. Paul tells us the one church will exist from the beginning, Christianity, through all generations, telling us uh, to him be glory in the church through all generations. So let's look at simple logical deduction. Jesus would never have given Peter the keys of binding and loosing and succession of the kingdom of David if he was not reestablishing the kingdom in the universal church of both Jews and Gentiles, as James announced at the council. The church became Catholic when circumcision showing the promise of Abraham for Jews only was fulfilled through baptism for both Jews and Gentiles into the promise of Abraham fulfilled. Uh, do not call the, the Gentiles common. <laughs> uh, so Paul would never have called the church the pillar and foundation of truth. He would never have said that the manifold wisdom of God may be known to the principalities and powers in the heavenly places through the church if he did not believe that the church is Mount Zion, if the church was not the bride, the flesh of Christ, the reestablished kingdom of David. Therefore, when Paul said, how can one preach unless he be sent? He is saying the only authority that can send is the reestablished kingdom of David. When he said, obey your prelates who have the rule over you, for they watch for your souls. When he says, let the priest who rules well be worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in the word and doctrine. He would think it an abomination to say, obey the prelates of a denomination that is not the reestablished kingdom of David. It is heresy to say, obey the Anglican Church, the Lutheran Church, the Pentecostal, the born again. There is one supernatural sacramental church established by God, and the sacraments perpetuate the mystical body of Christ through time. The Eucharist is true because through the Eucharist is the true Passover for the general redemption of the world. And there is no salvation without the Eucharist before the Father. All other churches are created by man. There is nowhere in Scripture where man is given the right to form a different church of a different doctrine. 
Satan's deceptions have been that complete. He has even created paganism to keep people from Catholic truth. People think they can easily uncover the deceptions of a preternatural intelligence that has had from the beginning of time to perfect his brainwashing on a world scale. There's no Protestant church in Scripture. You cannot go through the Scriptures showing the formation of a Protestant-style church. You cannot separate apostolic tradition from the faith God established or you injure the very vitals of the gospel. So the church became Catholic, universal, before a word of New Testament Scripture was written. It became Catholic when the sign of the promise of Abraham and circumcision for Jews was fulfilled and entering the promise of Abraham fulfilled was established through baptism into the chosen people, the holy nation, the royal priesthood for both Jews and Gentiles. Universal. And the only thing you can put at the end of that is a period. I mean, <laughs> I, I mean, it's, it's just really, really clear. I don't know how you get around that and say, no, oh, no, 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 none of that is true. God gave us a Bible, and it's pretty much left you on your own. I mean, it's it's absurd to come to that conclusion if you believe. Well, if you do that, Luke, you, you basically have to deify the Bible. You have to give the Bible. They created itself. It wrote itself. It canonized itself. It translated itself. Um, you know, it, it's like uh, going to a restaurant and, and you like the soup, but you don't believe the chef made it. Then deify your own interpretation. Yeah, it's 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 absolute insanity. Wow, um, awesome presentation tonight. That was really a lot of. I'm glad that I took the time to read over everything before tonight's show, so I had a a real solid framework of what you laid out here. And I like wow. I like that format. I like that format. I, I like yeah. to get in the information and, you know, you, you forget about 80, you know, 80% of actually what you read. So you, you really need to you know put something together, you know, first. At least that, that's the way I think it works for me. Yeah. And it's really, really good that people can go back. I'm, I'm, I know the last few shows you've done that you also have printed up the show notes as, as a separate article. So we're kind of, Meshing those together so people can read it or follow it in in, in audio form. So awesome. Another awesome, awesome show. Um, you know what? I usually have you close with a prayer. Why don't I do it tonight? Sure. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Say, Michael, the archangel, defend us in battle. Be our protection against the wickedness and snares of the devil. May God rebuke him, we humbly pray, and do thou, O Prince of the Heavenly Host, by the power of God, cast into hell Satan and all the evil spirits who prowl around the world, kicking the ruin of souls. Amen. Amen. Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Well, God bless, and I can't wait to see what we do next Monday on the Luke Haskell Show. Everybody have a wonderful night. Good night. Not my house anymore. I'm looking at you.
What's that? What animal? Squirrel? It's just a it's just a small animal. Like uh maybe smaller than a rabbit. Nobody keeps a squirrel for a pet. It's a wild animal. In some areas, um, it depends on where. I mean, there's areas that get a lot of snow. There's areas that don't get any snow. It's the very big. Yeah. Yeah, just ice. That's what it is. Feel that way all the time. The same. I better go to bed. <laughs>